Psalm chapter 90 is where we'll be. It's week seven of our series, Living with Lamenting and Longing. Just a week or so more to go. It is the word that does the work. So hope you have yours right in front of you with all your journal ready to kind of dive in, take some good notes that you can share in your small group with your family, your children, some friends. Psalm chapter 90. I'm convinced that one of the essential problems, if not the essential problem, that we all face, and this is regardless of the type of distress or trial or hardship or temptation, name your situation, at the root of it, at the fundamental bottom of it, I'm more convinced that we all deal with this one issue, and it's this, our view of God is too small. And consequently, or conversely, our view of ourselves is too big. I really believe more and more that's at the root of just about everything all of us deal with. I mean, it, it may be, how do you finance church planting? It may be, how do you kill the sin of pornography in your life? It may be finding the courage to parent in a biblical fashion. It may be the uh, taking the risk of generosity and sacrificial giving. Name your issue, trial, temptation, distress, situation, or frustration. I'm more and more convinced the fundamental root issue is we have a view of God that is too small and a view of ourselves that's too big. He's too low, and we're too high. Psalm 90 solves that. Your Bibles are open there, aren't they? We're going to see this morning a beautiful lament that contrasts two things. The eternal magnificence of God with the temporal existence of man. So hang on and get ready. I will admit to you and warn you, I'll not be able to do a justice to this text. It will leave you wanting more. I'll leave you wanting more and myself as well. But we're going to do the best we can to look at this contrast so that when we leave, we have a larger, bigger, deeper, more robust view of God and a more appropriate, smaller, lesser view of ourselves. Now, right now, the American part of you is fighting against that. Let's see if we can uh, adjust our perspectives and get in line with Psalm 90, which, by the way, is the oldest of the lamenting psalms, written in the days of Moses, probably by Moses, during the 40 years of wanderings for the Israelites. We'll just go ahead and tag it towards the end. It seems to have some uh, ambiance that it may be towards the end of their wanderings. So we'll say it's in year 38 of their 40 years of wanderings. Can we do that? And we're going to read this, and there, we're going to see this beautiful contrast that Moses makes between God's eternal magnificence and man's temporal existence. Follow along with me as I read. 
first six verses, it'll give us our first, we'll call it a, a sub-level contrast. All, you'll see three kind of minor contrasts. They lean into the main one. Here's the first six verses which show us the first one. Lord, you have been our refuge in every generation. Before the mountains were born, before you gave birth to the earth and the world, from eternity to eternity, you are God. You return mankind to the dust, saying, Return, descendants of Adam, for in your sight a thousand years are like yesterday that passes by, like a few hours of the night. You end their lives, they sleep, they are like grass that grows in the morning. In the morning it sprouts and grows, by evening it withers and dries up. Do you just love the contrast in this opening section between God's finality and man's frailty? In fact, jot this in your journals, make a note of this in your Bible. Here's the contrast in these first six verses. God is final, I am frail. In fact, in these first two verses, Moses really establishes for us the eternality of God, the immutability of God, the transcendence of God. He does it through a, a metaphor that does fall short. It's the metaphor of a mountain. Do you see that in verse 2? He says, before the mountains are born... You gave birth to the earth and the world, and he's showing that God exists outside of time. He states this very clearly with the words uh, eternity to eternity. So, so God doesn't exist in time. God is over time. In fact, we wear watches. God doesn't wear one, all right? God isn't bothered by time. He's never late, never in a hurry. He's not rushed. God exists outside of time. Time is invented for our benefit, not God's. God's not keeping a calendar. He's not keeping a to-do list. He's not abiding by your checklist or your schedule. In fact, God has no concept of time in the sense that he's required to use it to live because he's outside of time. He's transcendent, unchanging. He's forever, eternal, final. I think you see this when he talks about how the Lord has been our refuge in every generation. You see that in verse 1? There wasn't like a beginning one, like, well, I guess God's going to kind of get on the ball today. He'll probably help this generation. No, every generation, eternity to eternity, God has always been and is and will always be. And this is, again, represented by the final verb in these first two verses when he says, you are God. Now, here's what I want you to admit with me, that to the normal casual reader, we don't expect a present tense verb there. Just admit this. I didn't expect it, and you don't either. In fact, if you read verse 2, which we're going to do it, you're going to expect a past tense verb. Look with me. This is how the normal human mind works. Before the mountains were born, you see, he's already in a past tense mode, right? Before you gave birth to the earth and the world, we're thinking, oh, yeah, something happened in the past. Before all those from eternity to eternity, we would expect it to say, you were God. Like, you were God now, and you were God then, but he doesn't say that. He says, before all of that, you are God. He's establishing the eternality, the transcendence, the immutability, the finality of God as, watch this, the I am. You see, God is always present tense. He sees everything all the time as it is. He's described often as of the God who was, is, and is to come. It's a, a poetic way to say God just always is. 
This is best described by his name, which he told Moses when Moses said, I'm going to go to Egypt like you told me to. I'm going to meet Pharaoh and all their leaders. Who am I to tell them sent me? And God says to him, you tell them I am sent you. The continuously transcendent, present, immutable, eternal, never-changing God. By the way, Jesus, in a very clear assertion of deity, said to the Jews in John chapter 8, when they were bragging about they came from Abraham, he said, before Abraham was, I am. Church, hear this. And again, my words will fall short. But God always is. He's final, forever, eternal, immutable, unchanging. And you should be thankful for this. I mean, consider for a moment, logically with me, if you, for the slightest moment, wished God would change into maybe a better God. Like, I wish we could get, like, God, you know, 1.2. Is it possible to get a little better version? Now, you might think that would be helpful, but watch this. If you do, the minute you think God could get better, that means at some point you had a God who really wasn't that good in the first place. Like, do you really want a God that can be improved? No, you don't. You want an eternal, immutable, unchanging, forever, final God. That's the God of the Bible. And I love the way that Moses here, after establishing this into the first two verses, contrasts this with man, and he does the exact opposite with man. He uses three metaphors to describe us. Are you ready for these? Uh, dust, sleep, and grass. Congratulations. I mean, from mountains, that's what God is like, and it falls short, but it's a you know, way to describe the immutability, permanence, the foundation of God compared to dust, sleep, and grass. Do you see this in verses 3, 4, 5, and 6? I mean, the point is, these are things that are unreliable, they're fading, they're quickly gone. They're not like God. They're not final and reliable. I was speaking with one of our older members oh, a few weeks ago. I think we were just outside those doors. And our conversation was about how they were doing and how I was doing. And so I just said in the course of the conversation, well, how did you sleep last night? <laughs> he said, well, I got up about six. After I got up at five. After I got up at four. After I got up at two. In other words, uh, not very good. He said, how's that for an answer? I said, well, it's not very final or reliable, is it? Old age isn't friendly to some people, is it? We laughed about that. It just reminded me again how fickle and changing and quickly decaying we are. We're anything but eternal and final. In fact, here's how James would describe your life. How he would describe my life. Watch fast. This is your life. It's gone. That's my life. It is but 
a vapor. I know sometimes that vapor seems long. Pain, trials, they can exacerbate our existence and they can sometimes make uh, difficulties in the years and the nights and the weeks seem long. But the Bible describes our existence as dust, grass, sleep, even a vapor. But it does not describe God that way. It describes God like a mountain. So do you see the first contrast? Metaphorically, mountains compared to dust, sleep, and grass. Theologically, a forever, final, immutable, unchanging, eternal God to vaporizing man. I'm so thankful for our eternally magnificent God, aren't you? Look at the second subcontrast here. It begins in verse 7. Follow along with me as I read these verses. For we are consumed by your anger. We are terrified by your wrath. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the night, excuse me, in the light of your presence. For all our days ebb away under your wrath. We end our years like a sigh. Our lives last 70 years, or if we are strong, 80 years. Even the best of them are struggle and sorrow. Indeed, they pass quickly and we fly away. Who understands the power of your anger? Your wrath matches the fear that is due you. So, so teach us to number our days carefully so that we may develop wisdom in our hearts. Interesting set of verses. Again, I think it does lean in further and helps extrapolate more about our temporalness. But there's something special about these verses that I think jumps out at us, and that is that they do seem to ring, they resonate with God's wrath and anger. Wouldn't you agree? In fact, five times you see a reference to that. The word anger is mentioned twice. The word wrath's, wrath is mentioned three times. So at a first reading, at a glance, you may think, wow, God's pretty upset. Like he's eternal, we're not, and he seems... Like there's something kind of a, a he's upset about something. He's, he's angry. He's mad, maybe. And if you don't look below the surface at what's brought about God's anger and wrath, you might just think, well, God's a mean God. He's just a crabby old man upstairs. That's not what's going on in these verses. What's going on in these verses, though those words are used, it's really a contrast between God's holiness and our sinfulness. Jot this down, would you? In your journal, in your Bibles. God is holy, I am sinful. And let me show you from these verses how we arrive at that. Would you agree with me that not only is there a sense of God's wrath in these verses, five mentions of five words that point that way, but there's also this sense in several verses that, that we're on this pathway to death. We have a few short years to live. Like no one lives forever you, you know, so, so live wisely. It's really short. Would you agree with that? There's kind of the sense of like, hey, you've got a limited time frame here. You ever ask yourself why that is? Here's the answer. Sin. When sin entered the world, death came by sin. Romans 5 says that. So upon all humankind is the sentence of death 
because of sin, namely the original sin by our first father, Adam. We are all now corrupted radically, and the end result, the judgment of sin is death. Now, you may say, okay, now I know why he's talking about the few short years, why we don't, uh, you know, uh, why we need to have wisdom to live these out. I understand phrases like the power of your anger, uh, his wrath, because we are under God's wrath. It was death because of our sin. Um, but Tom, why did that have to be? It's because God is holy and sin breaks the law of God. It violates God's character. This is why sin has separated man from God. It's not only been judged by God, but it separates us from God. So death is the sentence that we receive for sin, and separation is the current reality of those who are not in Christ and trying to relate to God. They're separated from God by their sin. I want to draw you to one phrase in here that shows this. It's in verse 11. Here he talks about the power of his anger, and then he says, your wrath matches the fear that is due you. You see, God is due something, and that is holy worship, uh, a holy, perfect keeping of the law. Like When God says something, he expects obedience, but we did not do that, so we're separated, we're sinful. And this is really the contrast in these verses. God is holy, we're not, and we're under the sentence of the punishment of that sin. So if you only start with judgment in these verses, you will come away thinking, man, he's just a crabby, old, mean guy up there. No, no, no. He's a holy God who, because of our sin, justly dealt with it, kept his word, and holily and righteously sentenced sinners. So God should not be looked at as mean or unkind or in error. God actually should be looked at as a God of consistency and constancy, a God of justice. He did what was right and what he said he would do. Now, as you think about these two concepts, God is holy, I'm sinful, and the result is I now have limited years to live because death is the consequence of sin. Watch this. The lightning bolt of the gospel strikes in the middle of that and brings us the mercy of God. Now, I want to kind of push pause here and, and fast forward to the cross where God, in a just fashion, did meet out his anger and wrath towards sin on one person, the God-man his son, Jesus Christ. And now for all who believe in Christ as the atoning, substitutionary sacrifice for their sin, God will show mercy upon them even though they're physically in their body bearing the consequence of, of death one day. He'll actually deliver them from that death, spiritually give them eternal life, all because of his mercy. So really what you see in answer to this is the mercy of God. It's not saying God's not just. He is. He meted out justice upon his son. But because of what he did to his son Jesus, we now experience God's mercy. 
And though we may die physically, we will never die spiritually. It's the mercy of God. It's the only way. Watch this. It's the only way sinful people can relate to a holy God. So my question to you is this. When you see this contrast about a God who has right and just anger towards sin and has sentenced mankind to death because of it, are you still trying to make this God happy? Are you trying to appease this God? Are you trying to reconcile with this God through your own means? It is impossible. Here's why. Because you and I are both sinful. We're unholy. We are intrinsically unholy. We are corrupted. Then anything we do to try to appease God, to be right with God, to be reconciled with God from that kind of point of view, it's, it's tainted. It's corrupt because it comes from a fountain that's corrupt. There's nothing you can do as a human, unholy and sinful, to be reconciled to God. He's other than you and I. He's different. We need someone who is intrinsically holy to take our place. Hallelujah for the gospel. Amen. And so God, the person of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, he condescended to us, became a man. He lived 33 years and perfectly fulfilled the law of God. He laid down his life as a sacrifice, as a substitutionary sacrifice for sinners. And now for all who repent of their sin and believe in Jesus Christ as the only way to be reconciled to God, the one who was holy and intrinsically right and pure, the perfect Lamb of God, for all who repent and believe in Christ as the only way to be reconciled to God, God shows them mercy instead of judgment, which is why Paul would say, for all who believe, there is therefore now no condemnation. Amen? So when you read this contrast, yes, be aware, he's speaking truthfully and humanly. Death has brought about a few short years for all of us, and it is the result of God's judgment upon sin. But God's judgment is right and fair when you look at it theologically. That, that is what God should do. That's what's due him as perfect, holy, without blemish, reverence, and obedience. We can't give that. So we're in, a, in an eternal dilemma but Jesus Christ solves your eternal dilemma. This is why the gospel is so wonderful and such good news every time we hear it. Amen? Because it reminds us that though we are under the judgment of sin, God was faithful and just, took that out on his son, and now all who believe in the son, we can be shown mercy instead of judgment. This is why Romans 3 would say about God, catch this, he is both just and the justifier of all who believe. God didn't cut corners, overlook something, pretend it didn't happen, act like it's not important. God looked sin square in the face. And he said, my grace is greater, my mercy stronger. And he ordained to crush his son in your place. And in that way, God is just, but he's the justifier of all who believe. Thank God for the gospel, amen? Well, that section makes a beautiful segue into the final section. It begins in verse 13. 
In fact, notice the first three words of this final section. Lord, how long? And so perhaps he's asking, how long do we live? How many years do we have? How long do we have to suffer? There's probably a lot in that question. This is the core of his lament in this chapter. So he realizes that that God is uh, holy. He's sinful. He knows God is final. He's frail. And so he's just thinking, Lord, how long is this this gap and this uh, contrast going to be the only thing I'm aware of, the only thing I'm living? So he asks the Lord, how long? And then he says, Lord, turn and have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your faithful love. Do you see the switch in ambiance? Do you hear the change in tenor? Judgment, wrath, holiness, God is do this. Death has come. Now we're sentenced to a few short years here to, to live. And, but now, God, if you would turn, have compassion, we'd be satisfied in this time. We'd find your faithful love to give us joy and gladness all our days. Verse 15, make us rejoice for as many days as you have humbled us, for as many years as we have seen adversity. Let your work be seen by your servants and your splendor by their children. You ought to draw a line back to verse 1. This is a very generational verse, isn't it? Remember, the Lord was our refuge in every generation. Here he talks about servants and then children. He wants God's work to be seen across generations. Verse 17, let the favor of the Lord our God be on us. Establish for us the work of our hands. Establish the work of our hands. I think what you've been to see in these last few verses is God's incredible mercy and compassion and long-suffering. And it's rightly so after talking a bit about his judgment, his justice, his righteousness. But God is a forgiving, grateful, merciful, compassionate God. He does turn and show compassion. He gives joy. He faithfully loves. I think you can see forgiveness several places in these verses. I've mentioned them already. Just let me repeat them briefly for you in a kind of a succinct fashion. You see the word turn in verse 13. You see the word satisfy in verse 14. Uh, Verse 15, make us rejoice. In verse 17, the idea of the favor of the Lord. These are all indications God is is, uh, uh, forgiving and merciful and gracious. And this is what Moses is crying out for, lamenting towards, longing for. He's longing for this, and he wants this to be established, this to be seen, because he knows he's forgetful, and so are his people. In fact, this is the contrast here in this final section. It's God's forgiveness contrasted with our forgetfulness. Just jot this down, would you, in your journals. God is forgiving, but I am forgetful. And you say, Todd, where do you see the idea of forgetfulness in here? Well, let me show you the two words that have really kind of resonated with me in regards to seeing why Moses is really crying out for God's work to be established. It's first of all in the word seen in verse 16. Let your work be seen by your servants your splendor by their children. Moses here is crying out for, let's end the 40 years of wanderings. Man, let's see your work again that would last for generations. And when something is seen, it's not easily forgotten. I think Moses here is saying, God, revive us. Show us. Manifest your power and presence. Let this be seen. Incidentally, it was Israel's forgetfulness that led the way to their continuous idolatry. You should read the book of Judges. I'm reading that with Julie right now. We just finished. We're into Samuel's. But but Judges is an amazing cycle. God does an amazing work. 
30, 40 years, and they forget. And then they're back to their idolatry. We find this even in the kings, don't we? It's something about seeing the work of God and then declaring the work of God and keeping it front and center that helps us avoid idolatry. And so I think the author here is saying, God, let us see your work so that we will not forget your work. Also see it in the word establish. It's mentioned twice, in fact. You see it in verse 17? When I hear Moses calling for something to be established, which, by the way, here is the Lord's work, but it's via the hands of God's people, so he calls it their work as well. Do you see the interesting contrast here? Verse 16, it's your work, let it be seen, but establish for us the work of our hands. So I think Moses admits there's a means to God's work, and it's the hands of his people, but it's not our work, it's your work. And he's saying God establish for us that work. He repeats it in verse 17. So I think when Moses says establish something, you have the idea of some sense of permanence, you know, a visual reminder, like it's there to stay. So I think really what, what Moses is aiming at is, God, you are forgiving, compassionate, long-suffering, gracious. Do a work in us so that we'll never forget that because we are prone to forget now, in this psalm, essentially what you see is a movement from, watch these words now, wonder to work. In fact, in my Bible, what I've written by verses 1 and 2 is the wonder of God. And then by verse 17, I've written the work of God. And I think this is an intentional, we may even call it poetic or musical movement of Moses to show us something. That when we desire to see the work of God among us, it begins with the wonder of God among us. And this is why I say to you, often we don't see the work of God among us because we have a small view of God. Sin is rampant. It continues to control us. Difficulties sideline us. Trials Take us off track. You name your situation, whether it's a temptation, distress, frustration. When you lose the wonder of God in all that's going on, when your view of God is small, don't be surprised if your view of the work of God is limited and your forgetfulness will probably be very high as well. Now, I love the way this psalm moves the people from wonder to work. It's really a symphony that does exactly this. And because he moves us from wonder to work, because he starts with who God is and then moves to what God has done and our role in that, our, our enjoyment of that, I think what he's doing in this, in this psalm is, is really just this right here. He's maximizing God and minimizing man. That's the best way to get the most out of lamenting. Maximize God, minimize yourself. When that occurs, your lamenting will be fruitful. Do you remember a few weeks ago when Travis reminded us and gave us an actual ratio to use? He said we should talk about ourselves and our laments and prayers about 25% of the time and talk about God 75% of the time. Great, specific, spot-on application. In fact, I'd say you go to 80-20, even better. 90-10, fantastic, right? The point is, in proper scriptural lamenting, you want to maximize God, his character, 
who he is, his work, and minimize yourself. Make much of God, make less of yourself. And this is how lamenting moves us and becomes fruitful in our life. So as you think about this, the three sub-contrasts, the primary contrast, the simple truth, can you say it together with me, church? Here's one way that we can really kind of put this in our pocket today, Psalm 90, and kind of think about it through the week. Ready? Lamenting is most fruitful when I maximize God and minimize myself. Yes, his finality, his holiness, his forgiveness, and within those three contrasts, his eternality, his transcendence, his righteousness, his justice, his mercy, his compassion, his long-suffering, all of those traits. Maximize those. Minimize yourself. And you will find that lamenting will follow a much more scriptural pattern than if it's all about you and very little about God. In fact, here's what I've noticed. When I'm slow to follow this pattern, my lamenting morphs into self-languishing. I move from what verse 13 says, Lord, how long, to Lord, why me? You've experienced that, haven't you? And we become more like criers involved in self-pity than longing people who want to see God rightfully worshipped and his work rightfully seen. So I want to encourage you, as you, in seasons of your life, practice praying via laments, do so by maximizing God and minimizing yourself. You say, Todd, how do I do that? Four quick tips, and I mean really quick. Here they are. Rehearse his character. Review his works. Then admit your needs and vulnerabilities and confess your sins. Just four simple ways to make sure you're maximizing God and minimizing yourself. Rehearse his character. Say it out loud, whether you're by yourself or with the group. Verbally express all the wonderful traits of God. Just list them. Let your heart be massaged and soothed and helped by hearing the character of God uh, spoken. Then review his works. Think back and remember when God was powerful in your midst, when his presence was manifest, those moments of redemption or sanctification. And then begin to admit your needs and vulnerabilities and confess your sins. Those are four ways you can maximize God and minimize yourself. And here's why you do that. To keep everything rightly vertical. You see, when we get too horizontal, we do make it more about us. Wouldn't you agree? But keep things vertical. And you'll find this produces in you a wonder and an awe about God. A life and a set of lips that worships God. And God will become large, high, big, grand, uh, incomprehensible. He'll become overwhelming. You'll be left speechless. That's a good place to live from. You'll see yourselves appropriately small. I say this is a good place to live from because I'm convinced that when the people of God lose the wonder of God, then they will not remember or long for the works of God. 
And often we try to rush to the works of God without, first of all, rooting that in the wonder of God. And we think we can kind of white-knuckle ourselves into something or physically energize ourselves into something or produce something. But it's his work through the means of our hands, yes, but it's his work. Only his spirit can bring life and vitality to it. So we must approach it with the most amount of humility and, and live in awe of God, in worship of God, in the wonder of God at his eternal magnificence. And that will motivate and fuel a life living for the works of God. So yes, church, lament. It's one of the ways that we pray at times. But do so in a manner that maximizes God and minimizes you. When you do this, it recalibrates you. And it will set your perspective not on you and your temporal existence, but on the eternal magnificence of God. To help this happen today, I'm going to ask you to stand. I'm going to read over you Psalm 90 with this prayer that as you leave, you'll be leaving with a larger, deeper, wider, bigger, grander view of God and a lesser, smaller, minimal view of yourself. Don't let that scare you. It could be the best thing for most of us. Amen. Here's Psalm 90. Lord, you have been our refuge in every generation. Before the mountains were born, before you gave birth to the earth and the world, from eternity to eternity, you are God. You return mankind to the dust, saying, Return, descendants of Adam, for in your sight a thousand years are like yesterday that passes by, like a few hours of the night. You end their lives, they sleep. They're like grass that grows in the morning. In the morning it sprouts and grows, by evening it withers and dries up. For we are consumed by your anger. We are terrified by your wrath. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days, they ebb away under your wrath. We end our years like a sigh. Our lives last 70 years, or if we are strong, 80 years. Even the best of them are struggle and sorrow. Indeed, they pass quickly and we fly away. Who understands the power of your anger? Your wrath matches the fear that is due you. So teach us to number our days carefully so that we may develop wisdom in our hearts. Lord, how long? Turn and have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your faithful love so that we may shout with joy and be glad all our days. 
Make us rejoice for as many days as you've humbled us, for as many years as we have seen adversity. Let your work be seen by your servants and your splendor by their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be on us. Establish for us the work of our hands. Establish the work of our hands.